name's Eileen Townsend, and I'm the editor of the Northern Logger and Timber Processor, a trade magazine for the forest products industry that's based out of the Adirondack Mountains in New York State. Hey, thanks for listening to this month's Northern Logger podcast. So if you read the Northern Logger magazine, or if you follow the Northeastern Loggers Association, you know that we are looking forward to our 2021 Northeastern Forest Products Equipment Expo, and that's going to be held at the Cross Insurance Center in Bangor, Maine, between September 24th and 25th, 2021. And if you're interested in exhibiting at the show or you have questions about it, you can call our offices at 315-369-3078 or email us at expo at northernlogger.com. So this month on the podcast, we're talking to two winners of our annual NELA awards. We're talking to PNR Lumber, which won our award for Outstanding Sawmill Operator, and to Chris Crow, who won our award for Outstanding Use of Wood. PNR is based in Wolcott, Vermont, and it's a family business there run by Ben Pantone and his mother, Kathy Pantone, and cousin Aaron Pantone. They have focused on solid relationships with loggers and truckers, and they maintain a consistent quality of output, creating rough-cut lumber and smooth-dimension lumber, as well as specialty materials such as cedar decking, pine tongue, and groove and shiplap, and a variety of hemlock-dimension lumbers. They provide essential markets to loggers in their area of Vermont, and we are excited to have them on the podcast. We also spoke with Chris Crow, who's the man behind Timberwolf Logging, based in Littleton, New Hampshire. Crow has been in business for nearly 35 years, and he and his wife, Rebecca, pride themselves on the diversification of their business. Rebecca handles the books while Chris works in the woods or at one of the company's two sawmills in New Hampshire and New York. The company has a reputation for high-quality logging, excavation, milling of crane mats, and firewood processing. So we talked to Crow about what makes his business successful and how he's handled all of the demands of a very diversified business. So here's our interview with PNR. It's a family, it started as a family business. Actually, we started in 1970. my uncle actually started with his brother-in-law, um, which is where the P the P is in my uncle, which is a Patwin, and Richards was the brother-in-law. Um, they started at a different location. And they were doing railroad ties. They were renting a, a sawmill from somebody else. And in the 70s, things were, were, were hard luck. And then my dad was actually working in Alaska. And he was sending a little bit of money down after in 72 or 73 to help out. And then he decided that he better come down and see what his money was doing. And so he got involved and the brother-in-law got out. Um, And then they ended up buying, procuring a piece of land at a different location in 1974, which is where we are now. And they started building that winter Winter of 74, 75, started building the, the sawmill building we have now. We've been here ever since. We've only got, I think it's three and a half or five and a half acres. And we're about at capacity for our acreage. Size-wise, we've got every every usable space used. In the, the early years, of course, it was 
do anything and everything that you could to get uh, to turn the dollar over. For a lot of years, they sawed uh, wholesale for Canadian market lumber. Canadian window industry was where what most of it was gone in the wintertime, softwood in the summertime, um, a little bit of hardwood, but it phased out of the hardwoods just because the market is so uh, fluctual. Put some new new equipment in, some brand new equipment in, in 1982. Put a, a dry kiln in in 1984. A new, uh, new carriage in 1985. Been running, we've put... I guess in 2005, we upgraded. The chip market was uh, questionable for the paper industry, so we put in a hammer mill, um, went to making, uh, so sawdust was our only byproduct. We downsized, we, we did away with the, the wholesale market because uh, we didn't know what we was going to do, just things were tight. Um, so we downsized crew. My cousin worked on and off before that, and I've been involved since uh, I graduated in 95. And we just kind of run with it. And can you tell me a little bit about the area around where you are, about, you know, what the forests are like around Wolcott? I mean, um, how, how many loggers do you have supplying you to? Nowadays, less and less. The loggers are, are starting to become a dying breed. There's there's a vast array of timberland. These both start softwood and hardwood. Um, we specialize in just softwood. Most of our logs come within 50 miles radius. Loggers cut them and we buy them buy them delivered mm-hmm. we buy most of our wood in the winter time and there's more there's a lot of guys that are doing excavating work in the summertime right and so in the last 10 years we buy most of our summer production of logs in the winter time interesting uh, we'll, we'll buy we'll buy through the summer but we're we're looking for a certain size product we're not we only buy down to, to 80 inch diameter in cedar, we buy a little bit smaller, but most everything else is all 8-inch and up, right. um, which is a, a little bit of a niche market, which we pay a little bit of extra money to get the wood that that we need. In the last few years, it's been with COVID. Um, we were scared early in last year. It was busy, busier than we'd ever been because people were home and doing doing things and proud to support. You know, we support local economy you know, in our business as much as we can, and... Um, our customers do as well. We're strictly strictly retail now. We've been strictly retail since 2005. Mm-hmm. So everything, it, it's all retail. We've got a crew of, there's three of us family members involved, and then we've got five employees. And normally we plane, we saw, we dry, sort lumber. When, when it's busy, we're, we're spread thin. Um, when times are tough, you know, we've got a small enough crew that, We've a couple of years when it was was really slow. 2008, 2009, we cut on some of our own woodland. We don't own much, just personally woodland, just to keep our crew. It's better to keep our crew working right. for us than it is to lose them. Right. Um, and they were happy to do a little bit something different um, and still get a paycheck. So, what's the biggest challenge for you in in running a mill right now? The biggest challenge can can get to be staff, you know, workforce. Mm-hmm. We've got uh, this, and that's across everywhere. You talk to anybody, but um, keeping keeping uh, good employees, um, making it uh, favorable for them to stay, and attracting new employees that want to work. It's not the top end of the wage scale compared to wage wage versus labor required. The crew that we've got is is aging, 
as people slowly do, very few young interested in a good, honest day's work. In the logging, on the logging side of that too, the same. Most of the logging base, most of them are, you know, are are older. There's not very many young young people getting into logging just because of all rules, regulations, the water water quality issues, and, and that's one of our, you know, in the back of our mind is is stormwater runoff legal, you know, different legislations involved with that, jumping through some of the some of the legal hoops. Right. You know, that's, and as unknown, you know, as a small business, you know, as states throw things at you, how much is this going to cost to comply? Can we comply? And where, what, and what do you do now? Right. Are all, all questions. We're working right now on a stormwater permit issue for the state of Vermont, and I'm getting mixed uh, from the Department of Natural Re- Agency Natural Resources, you know, by... Certain specifications, yes, we need one. And then I've got an email from someone that works there that says that we should be exempt for what we're right on the borderline acres. But, you know, that's all extra work to do at the end of the day, you know, on top of running running everyday business operations. I'm curious what you have planned for the mill in, in coming years. Are there any big projects that you want to talk about that you're undertaking? Um, we're we're working at putting a new carriage in, upgrading carriage. And as if things are good, you you invest in the equipment. Um, we were going to invest in it last year, but all the new equipment is bigger, bigger, I guess you'd say, than than what we've got um, for as far as real estate in the mill goes. So we've got to do some some re-engineering in the mill to make room for a new carriage. Which, and of course, that's the most valuable. We've discussed upgrading an edger. You know, who knows? We don't know what what the the future will bring. I know with the economy going the way, everything goes in cycles, and we've been on an up cycle for so long. It's bound to crash, and I think it'll crash hard when it does. We're small enough. I I think we'll survive okay, but you know, if you if you're slow, you don't throw a bunch of money, uh, invest a bunch of money into your you you know you don't put yourself don't dig yourself in a hole that's right. that's the main thing you know if you're if you're busy and turn some money over invest it uh, into your you know into your business and if things are slow you know make do with what you have right and we're you know we're I guess we've been bought up in this business and a sawmill is a lot like a farm so you, you know you you work on your own things you know you you learn to. You learn to know what you've got and how you can fix it and, you know, keep some parts around and, you know, pretty much we can fix anything that we've got and that, you know, so you don't have to haul it, hire in outside labor and, you know, be dependable on that either. You've got to have a good good attitude. You know, and it's dealing with the public, you know, we're strictly, which we we move, you know, 600,000 feet of year six or seven hundred thousand feet a year on a normal on a normal year in year out um this past winter we bought about a million three feet of logs because we had sold out on so much stuff last year right you know and we we've run into run into scheduling complications this spring um we're behind because we bought more wood you know we sawed more wood of different species at different times of year than we would have been sawing something else and so it's it's put us behind Schedule-wise, there's only so much time in the day, and if you've got, you know, we we added to our workload, I guess, to try to to try to catch up on some of the stuff we were low on. 
you, you dig your own hole sometimes and make your own work. We could have bought what was normal, but we'd have probably run out mid-season is what we were speculating, and we had the money to invest more more log supply, and we had you know room room to put it. And we know that it carries the last year. We we had bought a little bit budget uncomfortable in the spring on wood supply, and it was a good thing we did because we needed every bit that we cut. So. Yeah. Well, I guess sometimes, you know, you just got to get a feel for that sort of thing. Right. And it is. It's totally a lot of it. You know, we, we put a computer system in, you know, for, for sales 2014. So it's easier to look at graphs and to see rises and, and dips in, you know, in year to year to help kind of figure out where, what do we need. And a lot of it's being right, but right by seat of your pants, you know, it's what we've got for for inventory, you know, we've got covered storage. We can we can put uh, 350,000 feet of dry lumber under cover. When things are normal, we've got a pretty good supply of dry lumber ready ready to, to plane out pretty much at, at moment's notice as, as orders come in. Uh, right now, every, everything, you know, our yard is, is low on a lot of species, and our, our sheds are low on a lot of species, and... It's just, it takes time. Most customers are understanding. They understand. Try to do the best you can and still be kind, courteous to everybody. And most customers, 98% of customers understand that mm-hmm. and are willing. You know, it's a good, we've got a good customer base, which, and that's, you know, a big key to surviving. And there's, of course, there's less and less mills around. There's doing what we do. There's a small couple small mills around but on the scale of what we do we're we're the largest one you know largest small mill in 40 45 or 50 miles that customer base there's some small guys doing stuff too and you know and there's a few some of the small mills have each got their own niche we send people the correct direction too and break down you can help each other out yes your competition but help each other out a little bit you know older guys have been there and you can ask you know, ask questions. When in doubt, ask questions. And, you know, don't try to take their business, but definitely ask questions. Most people, most people are good. I guess that's, you know, a good description. I know we broke down, of course, everything is aging. We broke down a month ago something you can, we've got a good supply of parts, but you can't have parts for everything. The part was obsolete and the new, there's a replacement part for it, but parts were back ordered. And um, we speculated, and that the supplier speculated they might have been stuck on on the ship that was stuck in the Suez Canal. Oh, um, wow. That's interesting. You know, just one of those, you know, crazy things, because a lot of parts are China-based. We couldn't get, nobody could give us a, uh, a timeline of when this certain replacement part would. And so we called around to some of the other mills that we know and ended up buying apart from one mill offered to let us tear theirs apart because they had a fire and they're in between rebuilding and they were going to let us borrow borrow their part and we didn't want to do that but another mill i called had had something similar and so we we built a new shaft um and we're back running interesting okay great well i think i have enough information for the story and i don't want to you know take up any more of your saturday afternoon yeah no sounds good All right. Sounds good. Well, thank you so much. Good afternoon. You too. Bye. Bye. Thanks to Ben. And here's our interview with Chris Crow. 
Yeah. Um, I don't know. So when I was a child growing up, you know, I was I was with my father all the time, and our garage was behind our house, and and uh, I just was in the woods around the equipment, driving the truck, you know, even at very young ages. And it's just something that I, I knew that I was going to be doing, you know, I just, just, just liked it. And I thought it was pretty cool to do all this stuff. And, and then when I graduated high school, um, the old man, he had told me, he said, listen, you can either work for me or go do your own thing, but no partners. So we never combined, you know, I never, I either worked for him as an employee or I worked for him as, as a subcontractor. Or, and then he, you know, he also worked for me as a subcontractor as he is with by trucking and stuff. But, um, yeah, so I just was kind of riding around in a car seat in big trucks with my father or whatever when I was a little, little guy and just kept going from there, I guess. And so when did you actually found your own business? So I graduated in 85 and then I did work with my father in the woods and I started in 86. I bought my first, I bought a brand new 640 John Deere skidder, cable skidder. Because I graduated at 17. So I was 18 when I ordered it, 19 when it came in. Wow. But I started in 80. Well, I had a truck. I also had a truck before that. So, but yeah, we started in 86. Did that feel like a lot of responsibility for still being a teenager? No, no. I mean, at 18 years old, I built my own house on the weekends. I worked all week, and then on the weekends, I I cut all the logs and built a log house to live in. Wow. I moved out at 17. Yeah. I don't know. No, nothing's ever seemed to bother me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, My understanding is that today your company is really diversified, and I wanted to talk to you a little bit about, you know, just the range of things that you all do. Yeah. So we're good size logging company in New Hampshire and trucking. We have trucking and logging and we've been doing dirt work for, you know, I had a, you know, like, a, you know, cellar hole septics and we did all that. I'm trying to get out of that because I don't have time to deal with all the time involved in doing that stuff. Um, but I still do some. Right. And we've been doing that excavation and stuff since 2000. We were doing it before that, but not set, you know, I wouldn't go septic wise and all that. Wouldn't. So what happened was, I don't know what year it was, 2003, two, three, Berlin, Pulp Mill up here closed down. So things were tough, you know, so I went into a lot, I went heavy into dirt work for a few years. So we do do dirt, you know, I have five excavators and a dozer. So we do the dirt work, the trucking, the logging. And then six, seven years ago, I started into sawmilling, making crane mats. And we started out slow, you know, like a wood miser mill. And then I bought an old circle mill, tore it down, moved it, set it up into a building I already owned, made it fit. 
I built my own drilling machine to drill in the cans for the mats. And then last year, I uh, resurrected a mill over in New York and built another drilling machine for that mill. And we got that going in December. We started sawing wood in December, and, and we're slowly getting that mill up and going, making crane mats and sawing some lumber. The same thing, though, an old circle mill. Mm, wow. Circle sawmill. So we have two sawmills now. We do firewood, a couple thousand. We're probably going to hit a couple thousand cords or more this year on firewood. Yeah, we do a little bit of everything. And who who are your customers for firewood? Are you doing kiln dried or is it? No, it's uh, we sell most of it green, and we have big buildings. We put it in, and it gets air dried. So after September, we'll we sell some dry wood, whatever's left. We sell, my my wife deals with all the firewood and sets up all the customers. And she sells around a thousand or so quarter a year local, just local delivery. And and we'll have like a thousand quarter so go out on life floors to, you know, other, com- you know, other companies. But it goes out on life floors, hmm. wholesale. So. That's a lot of firewood. You've got your mill in New York. You've got your firewood. You've got the uh, logging. How do, how do you manage your time to make sure everything is on track? I go to the hottest fire every morning when I wake up. <laughs> Whatever fire is the hottest, that's where I go. Obviously, I had some book work I do. My wife and now my daughter are both in the office. My wife is a very big part of this business. We could not be where we are without all the work that she does. We've grown because of everything. She's worked here for 20 Oh, 23 years, 23 years. She takes a lot of that stuff off my plate. She handles it. But, you know, like I drive, I'll drive, I drive truck. During the winter, I drive truck every day, almost all day. And haul wood, and I drive truck in the summer. I move all the equipment, look for the jobs. Then I have to do the bidding and all the prep work, paperwork for the job to set them up. I talk to all the loggers to buy wood in at my mills, both mills. People call me all the time to want lumber, all the breakdowns of the logging equipment. I do have a mechanic, but sometimes I'm doing mechanic work. So it's pretty much a seven-day-a-week job. Yeah, sounds like it. And so how do you manage you know, your relationships with landowners, and how do you deal with kind of the, the people aspect of the business? I do a lot for foresters. I work for a lot of different foresters. I also do state sales and federal sales. Um, I do do some, you know, private sales direct with the landowners. And, you know, I just, we we find out what the landowner wants, um, what they're trying to get, what the main objective is. Sometimes, you know, wildlife, sometimes it's just about money. Sometimes it's about doing the right thing for the forest, for the future. Sometimes it's just a house lot with a view cut or, you know, so we, we do tons of different cuts and the way the land gets cut. Um, but I basically, you know, I do, I meet with the landowners and we get it all set up and contracts wrote and, and uh, you know, and then I work with the, with the crew make sure everything, the outcome comes to what the landowner is looking for. 
Well, um, I do a lot. Ninety percent, ninety percent of my work is for a forester. Okay. Most gotcha. of the foresters I work with, we've been working, oh. we've been working together for years, and the foresters know my men. They know all our capabilities. They know what you know, what we can and can't do, and you know, so it, it goes pretty smooth. Because just because we've been doing it for so long and we're so connected with a lot of forces, we've done a lot of work for them. Right. And so how many employees do you all have? Depends on the season. If you add them all up, somewhere between 30 to 40. Okay. So would you say for your region, you're a mid-sized company or or more of a large company? Uh, For our region, I'm a large company. Can you tell me a little bit about your equipment lineup? Well, John Deere, Moabark, Western Star, and Hood. (laughs) (laughs) Everything I got is John Deere, Star's logging equipment. And we got three fellow bunches. We got five skidders. We have two processors, one stroke delimer, five excavators, a dozer. That's all John Deere. We have three hood mobile slashes and three hood 182 yard cranes. Oh, God, I don't know, nine Western Star trucks. So how do you handle maintenance on all that? Well, oh, I guess up until two years ago, myself and the whoever ran the equipment, we, we fixed everything. I had a part-time mechanic, you know. He's full-time right now. So I do have one full-time mechanic who is a very capable man, hot worker, he, he, and he's busy. So I wanted to ask you more of a wide-ranging question, which is just what do you feel is the most uh, challenging part of, of being in the industry? Well, that's a moving target. But in today's world, it is the loss of our low-grade markets. Um, of course, J-Main blew up. So, softwood pulp market is gone. That's, there's there's nothing here. You have to put softwood pulp in a chipper. And, of course, with Jay blown up, the other mills get plenty of wood. So, I, during the winter, I'm moving 65 loads of pulp a week. Last winter, just in the lost value of the pulp price, I think it cost me 80 some thousand dollars right out of my pocket. Wow. But do you have chip markets available to you? I have a fairly decent market. I get I can get rid of, you know, not as many loads as I used to, but we still get rid of a sufficient amount enough loads so we can operate. But we've had to slow down. Right. And you know we just you know, you gotta be careful or you you can't move the amount of wood that we can cut. You know, during the summer we run around 70 or so loads a week. In the wintertime, we'll run around 120 to 130 loads a week. Um, so when they put you on quotas and everything, you know, sometimes that becomes a uh, balancing act to be able to operate. And and what part of the business do you like the most? I, I don't know. I guess I just like being out in the woods and I, well, I guess my wife would tell you that I like the challenge, I guess. Because <laughs> logging is probably one of the most challenging businesses to try to figure out how to make money in. It's very difficult. 
Definitely. Um, and it seems as if it, you don't really rest on your laurels. It seems like anytime there's an opportunity to expand and learn a new market, you all have done that. You have to. I mean, like I started out 2012 messing around with processes to use on the landing. I tried them in 2003, 2000, 2003, I cut the length in the woods. And it's just not, it's not for me. I, let me say that. It's not for me. I just could not produce enough wood with them. So 2012, I started with a processor on the landing, and I believe that that is, it's my own belief, that I believe, you know, that is the best way to log, at least in the Northeast, where our utilization of our wood is superior. You know, you're running, and, and our production is great. It's more than you can get with a stroke delimiter and slasher. And we get all, we get all the wood out, you know, right down to four inches. You know, and then we still limb, we still throw the tops in. So that's how we produce, are able to move so much wood to the, we utilize sometimes up to 16 different markets on a job, pushing wow. that wood, you know, different mar- little niche markets, firewood over here, and, you know, pallet logs over here, mat logs, because obviously I own the mill, but we saw, saw them make crane bats, so, you know, and pine logs, spruce, hemlock, we move everything, we try to put, we utilize the wood to the fullest extent that we can, and the processors really do a nice job of you don't miss those little five inch, 12 foot long spruce and fir logs. Instead of putting that in the chipper now, or the pulp used to be, we get every one of them because we handle each tree at one at a time. Flashes and stuff, you, you miss some of that stuff. Yeah. And I imagine that, you know, you're dealing with fairly nice stands of timber often. It depends on where we're cutting. The northern part of New Hampshire has been cut over pretty hard. There is still some good timber standing here and there, but we also travel, you know, we travel up to two hours to work every day. Oh, okay. In the summer. In the summer, we travel, and when we hit southern New Hampshire, we do cut some nice wood. Yeah, a lot of logs, oak, pine, you know, a little bit of everything. You know, we cut everything, so. All right. Well, is there anything that you feel like should really be featured in the yeah, uh, I don't know. It was kind of a surprise to me when I opened the letter because <laughs> I didn't have a I didn't have a clue. My wife just came back to the office if you would like to speak to her because I, like I said, she's a very big part of our business. I don't know okay. If you yeah. Want to ask her? Yeah, that would be good. So Chris was just telling me a little bit about the business and about how you handle a lot of it and. So I guess I'm curious to hear your perspective on balancing all of these different parts of the operation. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Um, <laughs> we have, we just started a new mill in New York. I'm sure you told you that portion. So that's the hardest um, simply because everything else we have is right here close by. So it's pretty hard to have another business in a different state um, and to stay, you know, on top of it, like we do here in, in New Hampshire. But it's been, it's definitely worked. Everything that um, Chris has an idea to jump out and do um, has always worked really well. I had a banking history, so started doing the books for him years ago. And 
everything has just grown exponentially since then. I believe at that time he had eight or nine employees, subcontractors, and now between all of the businesses, we're over 30 employees. And your daughters work with you too, right? Yes. Our oldest daughter currently works in the office, which is great because it was getting to the point of being slightly overwhelming (laughs) with having everything going on. And then our two younger daughters worked in the company every summer and school vacations and whenever I could get them when they weren't doing sports or anything else, I would make them come work with doing all the office work kind of stuff. And our oldest son at one point worked for us also. So yeah, right now we currently have, currently have, I believe it's either three father, son or family member combinations working for us. At one point in time, um, when Chris's father was still driving truck for us, we had between our mill and our logging company and everything, we had six father-son groups working for us, hmm. um, which is pretty interesting, different for in the area. Not a lot of people stay in the same industry as their parents nowadays, I don't feel. Um, but in our little area, we seem to have a, a good chunk of, <laughs> of father-son groups that are, or some combination, cousins, brothers, that kind of stuff. That's interesting. Do a lot of young people leave the area? A lot of young people do leave there and a lot of young people aren't into working the type of hours that are required in in our industry anymore. We've seen that a lot over the past probably 10 years. We don't have very many younger people coming and wanting to learn to work in the woods and or work at the mill. Our mill workers are, it's very hard to find them. That's a very, very hard industry because um, it's mostly just labor and there's, it's a, it, that's a hard niche to fill. Um, they can go to McDonald's and work for, you know, basically the same type of income that we can pay them now, now that McDonald's is paying so well. Right. Um, you know, five, five years ago, they would come and do a laboring position because they couldn't just walk into, like I said, McDonald's and get $15 an hour. Or right. I heard recently that their McDonald's here in our area is upping, they're going up to $18 an hour. Wow. And the thing is, our industry, both in the logging and in the mill, we can't really, we won't get the job if we pass the labor costs on, whereas people are still going to go to McDonald's and buy a hamburger if they go up 25 cents and spread it out through their whole company. Right. So for us, we're getting paid similar prices that we were paid 10, 15, 20 years ago. So you have to figure out ways to make every single dollar count. Um, And that's hard. It's hard because, you know, you would love to be able to pay your employees Definitely, but there's only so much we have between the equipment and the expenses and and the labor. Right. Um, so that's a that's a real tough part of our industry. So did you ever expect to be working in a family business with your husband and all your kids? <laughs> um, I, originally, probably not. Um, like I said, I have a banking background, and and the numbers that part is an easy part. Um, but originally when I first um, was working with Chris, it was, you know, very part-time, 12 hours a week, somewhere around there. He did a little bit more of the office stuff than than he does now. He hates to be in the office, actually. Um, <laughs> he would prefer to be out doing anything but it. <laughs> right. Um, and then as it grew and everything became more and more in the wintertime, um, you know, there are times that it's seven days a week, hopefully Sundays, usually a half a day. Um but that's in, in the busy time. Um, it's nice to have Jesse, that's our oldest daughter now, working in the office. It, it frees me up to go and do 
more things that I would like to do, which is nice. So that's, that's very helpful. Um, and it's really nice to, um, Chris's father had such a great reputation in town and Chris has a great reputation in town. It's a very, it's, it's nice to, to be proud of, of what we have and what they, you know, Chris and his dad, the reputation that they have in the area and that we have in, in New Hampshire. It's nice. Right. Well, it seems like you've got a pretty tight knit little community up there. Yeah, there's not many, not many times that Chris can drive downtown and not have to wave a bunch. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> great. Well, I don't want to keep you on the phone all morning. I know that you've obviously got a lot going on. All right. Thank you very much. All right. Have a thank nice day. you. You too. Bye. All right. Thanks for listening to this month's Northern Logger podcast, and we hope to see you at our expo this September 24th and 25th in Bangor, Maine.